This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Tracy Baxley to the show. Dr. Tracy is an author, professor with over 30 years experience, and specializes in diversity and inclusion, anti-bias curriculum, and social justice education. As a mother of five, she was inspired by her own experiences to talk openly with her children about topics of race, politics, and current social injustices. Today's episode is going to be all about, you guessed it, social justice parenting. Since the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement really coming to the forefront of the news media cycle, so many moms I've worked with have wondered, how can I instill these values in my children? How can I parent children for acceptance and belonging rather than hate and division? This conversation with Dr. Tracy is going to help to give you some of the tangible tools you need in order to make lasting and sustainable change. I don't know about you, but when all of this news broke and when having these conversations, I feel such an urgency to make a difference. I so badly want to help and want to see change. And I didn't really know where to start or what to do. So having a bit of next steps or a bit of a formula is exactly what we need in order to get started doing this really significant and important work. I know you're going to love this conversation. So, you know, have those earbuds on the go, walking or whatever it is you may be doing around the house. Thank you for spending your time here with me each week. Let's hear this really important conversation with Dr. Tracy Baxley. Before jumping in, let's hear our iTunes review of the week. This review comes from Hajika KD and it is entitled, I Feel Seen. I found the Happy as a Mother podcast when my son was about three months old and I was struggling as a new mom. I searched for motherhood podcasts that were relevant to what I was going through, resentment, anxiety, balancing emotions. I couldn't find anything that spoke to me or talked about what I was going through, and then I came across this one. I listened to one episode and fell in love with it. I finally felt seen and felt like I wasn't alone in these feelings. Thank you so much, Erica. I've told all of my pregnant and mom friends about this, and I've listened to every episode, even some multiple times. Thank you. I get all the goosebumps reading these reviews from you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that you've taken the time to share this feedback with me. The best way that you can support this podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing this show with friends to help get the word out. Now let's hear my conversation with Dr. Tracy Baxley. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts 
learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I am so excited. We've booked this a while ago in anticipation for your book release, your social justice parenting book, and I've been anxiously awaiting it. So excited and happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, congratulations. Congratulations on putting this workout into the world. How exciting. Very exciting. Nervous, but excited. Yes. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about how you got into the diversity and inclusion world? Is that something that has always sort of been on your heart or been a part of who you are or something that came about throughout your studies? How did you find your way into that field? Yeah, I think part of it has always been inside of me, you know, just from a young age. My family moved from a very kind of isolated Black community when I was younger, when I was in fourth grade, and we became the only Black family in my new neighborhood. Mm. And so I've always been kind of curious about this idea of belonging, like where do I fit in? How do I fit in? And I think it carried over into my teaching. You know, I always found those children who were left out or not getting along with others or felt like they didn't belong. I was always drawn to them. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's led me to inclusion work. And then it just became a part of my research agenda too at the college level and, you know, raising biracial children. My husband is white Mm -hmm. and I'm black. It's just kind of been always, you know, a part of my journey. Yeah, you're really speaking to my heart here in a different way, of course. I grew up in my white world, very naive and very unaware. And I married my husband, who is from West Africa, Benin specifically. And when we were getting engaged, traveled to Benin to meet family and do celebrations and to tour the country. (laughs) Oh boy, was I naive because the tourism there is rooted in history and the history there is rooted in slavery. And one of the biggest sort of tourist spots to visit was this massive port of slavery off the coast of West Africa. Wow. And I'm like this 21-year-old or 24-year-old, however old I was, completely ignorant to this point, which I know is a privilege to have gone that long and be unaware. And then learn, like, you know, just have my eyes sort of just this veil ripped open of the realities that he has lived and others have lived. Wow, yes. Uh, And so powerful experience. And I think that a lot of people... Well, I would hope that people have these moments where their eyes are opened, you know, but unfortunately for many, like in your case, you were saying you were like a young kid and this has come about, right? Yes. And I think that is a powerful moment for you young, right? But I think a lot of moms, particularly white moms, are having that moment now, right? With the whole, with George Floyd, Yeah, it has really allowed people to have almost an insight look into the Black community Mm -hmm. and to see what happens, unfortunately, often enough that nobody was surprised by it. Mm -hmm. So I think this reckoning that happened in 2020 is really 
in some ways great in that it's getting more people aware and thinking about what their responsibility is in changing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you open the book with a story about your husband being pulled over by the police, right, with the kids in the back of the car. And he's white with biracial kids. And I'm in this swapped position where my husband is black and all three of my boys are black. And I now have this very keen insight into something I was completely blind to before. And like you said, with George Floyd and the conversations happening, it's just such an important conversation for us to be having. So I appreciate that we're here and and doing this today because I've got so many moms on my platform and so many who are wondering, how do I make a difference in this? Like I'm just maybe a white mom with a white family or I'm just, you know, feeling all of this white guilt and fragility, right? Like what do I, what are some practical steps for me maybe as a stay-at-home mom or a working mom who wants to have an impact in this area? And I think that this is exactly what we're here to discuss today, right? Some of these tangible things we can be doing with our children. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I always talk about parenting in itself is activism. Yeah. And so the way that we're showing up for our children every day and the spaces in our own homes is really part of the movement that we need to be conscious of and mindful of and how that can have a rippling impact on really societal changes. Yeah. Can you unpack for me this idea of social justice parenting? What does that mean for somebody who may not really understand like activism or be familiar with these words? Yeah, social justice parenting is a way that we intentionally and purposefully, ways that we raise our children to care deeply, to love radically, and to really show up for others. So I really see it as kind of the antidote to fear-based parenting, Mm -hmm. which a lot of us are kind of stuck in, this idea of protection, what I need to, to protect my children, how do I keep them safe? And what we're really doing when we do that is we are isolating our kids more. We are limiting their opportunities with others and with real life experiences. And so social justice parenting is like, how do we begin to stop doing the fear-based parenting and really expose our children to things that are happening outside our homes, outside our communities, and ways that we can engage with our children around these issues and to raise kids who are more compassionate, who are allowed to kind of lean into their natural curiosities and use that really to become change agents as they grow up. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you bring fear into the conversation. There certainly is an element of we fear what we don't understand or what we're not exposed to, right? I see this even in in mothering and in mothers who choose different values in mothering. Like we might reject or shame or fear somebody who is different or thinks differently than us for a lot of reasons, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think part of that too is we project our own fears and anxieties onto our children. And when we are protecting them from our fears, we then are creating those same anxieties and fears in our kids. Hmm. And so when we are doing that parenting in fear, it makes it very difficult to see the world from somebody else's perspective. And if we're trying to raise children who are more compassionate, more kind, they need to see the world from some other perspective other than their own. 
And so when we're always protecting and we're always using fear to guide our parenting, we're not allowing our children to not be a part of our own anxieties and fears. Mm -hmm. So in doing this type of parenting, would this be considered like anti-racist work? Can we unpack this term? I know when all of this started with George Floyd, like the very term racist feels so intense and inflammatory that, but now it's being used more and this concept of being anti-racist. Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think being anti-racist is a part of social justice parenting because it's about raising children who are proactive and making a difference. I always get clients who say that they want to raise good children, right? Good people. And anti-racism is a step beyond just raising good people because it's more the action behind raising nice people. So raising good people to me is a little more passive. Hmm. Like, you know, we teach kids to do no harm, but when you're raising kids who are anti-racist or pro-justice, they are interceding when harm is being done. Hmm. And so I think the idea of anti-racist is being active. It's the action part to when you look at things that are unfair or inequitable, it's about showing up to change those practices or those systems. Mm-hmm. And so much of this is taught and done in our childhood. Because I think that when we're talking big conversations and concepts like racism and anti-racism, right? But like this small, innocent child, like do we need to be having this conversation with them when they're so young, right? But like this is where the work begins. I think back to my childhood. My family is from the east coast of Canada, from Newfoundland and very rural towns and areas, not a lot of diversity and not a lot of exposure to communities outside of their own, aside from Inuit, which is part of my background. And there's some like indigenous background there. But aside from that, not a whole lot. And I can see in my upbringing sort of pivotal moments in my childhood where racism was taught, if I'm not going to sugarcoat it, right? Like, yeah. And those conversations started in my youth. Yeah. And I think people are waiting for the right moment or the right age. And if we look at the studies that present themselves around young children and race, children as early as six months really start to recognize racial differences. By the time they're in preschool, they already have racial biases where they are choosing playmates that look like them. Mm. So, I mean, think about the Clark doll experiment in the 1950s where they put the different shades of dolls in front of the Black children, and none of them wanted to be like the Black dolls. Mm. And all the negative comments were focused on the Black dolls. So children recognize race early. They understand that race has a power structure in our country, even though they can't articulate that. Mm. And so when we're waiting to talk to them about it, they're forming their ideas about it based on societal comments and ways of showing up in TV and media. And so I always say to parents, who do you want to educate your child about race? You know, is it going to be friends, social media, society, Google, right? So don't let your fears really get in the way from you being the person who's going to guide your children right. uh, about things about race. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about 
I've been seeing on TikTok of all places. I'm like down the rabbit hole. Moms who, when they're doing their like young black daughter's hair in the morning, will put them in front of a mirror while they're doing their hair and say like affirmations to them. Things like celebrating their hair, celebrating, you know, their skin, the shade of their skin, their skin color, things like that. What ways can moms be doing this maybe that are white and don't have the opportunity? Like the the natural opportunities, I feel like, come up with my sons because they notice their skin is different. So it'll be like, oh, you know, your skin is light and daddy's skin is dark. We had our really great friends over and they're all dark skinned and they were like, oh, everyone in their family has dark skin, right? And they just note these things out loud and we're like, yeah, I know. Isn't that like amazing? And we talk about it, but we have those opportunities. And I think that in all white families, those may not come up so like served up on a platter so naturally, right? So what might be some ways for those types of families to naturally incorporate some of these conversations. Yeah, definitely. Some of them have to be created, right? And I think using what's going on in the world is a great entry point because not only are they recognizing that these things are really happening in the world, but that they have a safe space that they can have dialogue around them. Mm. And I have these kind of four S's that I call them to really kind of this anti-racist parenting. Okay. And it's self-reflection, right? So the first thing you have to do is really kind of check in with yourself. You know, what were the messages that you were taught? And like you were saying, Erica, that in your home, things were not talked about race. And when they were, there were some racist things said. Mm -hmm. So as a parent, you have to unpack that and think about how that impact the way that you parent. Mm -hmm. So have some self-reflection. The next one is survey. So sometimes we've made choices in our lives, like where we live, and it's going to have impacts on all these other choices. So if I chose to live in this community that's all white, which means probably my kids are going to go to school where people who look like them, and then which means their friends are going to be the same, which means, you know, the sports or the after school activities that they choose are the same. So you need to survey your daily life, right? Survey your inner circle. I always tell my, when I'm at workshops, for parents to pull out their phones and look at the context on their phones. Do they all look like you? When they don't look like you, in what context mm. do you know them? Mm-hmm. You know, or do they work for you mm-hmm. or, you know, are they colleagues at work or whatever? So surveying your life, your children's bookshelves, your toys, their playgroups, And what do you find? What do you notice? So being mindful of that. The other S is speak. So that is where you're starting to engage in these conversations, these natural conversations with your children. Don't wait until the perfect moment. Use the current events. Use the things that they ask you. Don't shy away from the things that you don't know. You know, it's a great time for you to build trust with your children by saying, I don't know. Let's find this stuff out together. And then the last S is seek. So that is where you are going to then start to really think about how do I expose my children to differences? What cultural events can I go to? What after-school activities can we drive an extra 20 minutes to make sure my children are around different children? Their sports teams, you know, any professional people that you see, like your doctor, your pharmacist, your dentist, 
you know, is there a black or a, a dentist of color 20 minutes away? If the work is important to you, is that worth the drive? So I would say start seeking out ways that you can then support other people. So we get hung up on this word privilege and people get angry about mm-hmm. it, nervous about it. But really, privilege is just a way that we may have a little more power than somebody else. And then how do we then use that power in ways that we can become change agents in that space? So if we can stop thinking about the word power being weaponized and use it as a tool for change, uh, we won't feel so uncomfortable when we have to recognize our own power and privileges in the variety of identities that we hold. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, as a black woman, those are identities that I don't have power in in the United States, right? Based on the identities in the United States. But as a person in upper middle class, as a heterosexual person, right, cisgendered person, mm-hmm. I do have power. Mm-hmm. And so, how do I use that power to help those people who don't have power in that space and not get caught up on just this idea of white privilege? but examining all of our identities and using it to help others or support others. Yeah. And I can see how in those four S's, that self-reflection piece is probably what stumps us most. Yes. Like it's hard to get beyond into the other four S's without having the courage, I guess, and the bravery to just sit with yourself for a minute. You talk about how being raised in some of these maybe racist ways of thought or whatever from my upbringing. Well, then imagine as I step into parenthood in a biracial marriage with three black boys and having old narratives surface in my mind. The shame that comes with the like the cognitive dissonance, you know, and the shame that comes with that. Like realizing that this was a part of who I was, but also looking at my life the way it is now and loving it and having to confront that, right? Yes, that's heavy. That could be very heavy. And it could trigger a lot of emotional baggage that you kind of carry with you too. And honestly, Erica, this is the part that a lot of parents that I work with, they want to skip. Like I want to back out of this. Everything about it feels uncomfortable. And I think that when we start talking, like when you're saying we get stuck on the word privilege or then we get defensive and we get in these like wars, well, it's so easy. It's so much easier to deflect and enter an argument than it is to sit with my freaking self, right? Right. Like that is uncomfortable. Like, yes. Yeah. But that's what we need to do to intentionally parent differently. Yeah. Right. We want to bring in all those wonderful things about our childhood and pass that on to our kids. But we want to be very intentional about the things that we leave out. Mm -hmm. And that requires us to do some soul searching. It requires us to sit with those things that are not comfortable in order to create a different way of showing up for our own children. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, 
and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirin Areem's Psyched Mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create all the rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code rage20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code rage20. One of the things that I have done is if I've been, I don't know, driving or something, and I see somebody who is different than me in all the array of ways that people are different than me. And like an intrusive thought or like a memory or a script that I had been taught from childhood pops into my brain. The immediate feeling is shame. And I want to be like, oh my gosh, why would I think that about that person or whatever? But what I really try and do now is just note it and be aware of it. And then I lean into, but what if like, I'm sure, but they're probably this way. And what if they were like this? And what if they did this for work? And what if they, and I play out all these other positive what ifs and narratives around that person. And it just starts to shape how I see people differently. 
I can't necessarily control the thoughts that enter my brain. These scripts are like so woven in there that stopping them or never having them again, I think is an unrealistic expectation of ourselves. Right. Right. I totally agree. Yes. And so what we do when they come up is so important. Yes. And I love what you said, what you do, right? So it's almost like letting them pass through you Yeah. in a way that you feel them and you notice them, but they don't have control over the way you respond because the other thing is our children pick up on all those nonverbal cues, right? They see the way our body may tense up. They see the way our facial expressions are. That's teaching them how we deal with differences. Mm. And so it's really important to be aware of how your body takes those things in so that you are teaching your children what you want them to know and not what your body is saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, may- <laughs> it makes me chuckle a little bit because, oh, white people. <laughs> I'm thinking of all of these really funny situations where out of our white guilt or out of like conversations I've had with friends, we want to like swing so far in the opposite way to be friendly (laughs) that it is like so awkward. Awkward. Yeah. (laughs) And like, oh my gosh, I'm like laughing so hard. I'm crying. My one friend was telling me, you know, she's like so wants to be accommodating and like so friendly that she's like, oh, hi, you know, and like the black people in the like the suburb where they live are like, okay, hi, how are you, you know, and it's just like part of our learning process is cringy as it is, you know, and in some ways that can be like I can imagine and, you know, I'd love to hear from your perspective how that in itself is highlighting that you're different, right? Like it doesn't fall in line with the goal. It's a positive interaction at least, but it's still like highlights you in some way that you shouldn't be highlighted, right? Yes. And I think part of this journey of trying to do better, right? There are going to be some awkward, uncomfortable um, (laughs) situations, but I think the key is that you keep trying, right? You keep learning, you keep growing, you keep trying. If you do something wrong, you apologize and you keep moving. So the way to do it wrong is to do nothing at all. Mm. So be vulnerable, I think. Educate yourself. Keep trying things. Don't give up when it feels unnatural or uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I do think there are some times where we're overdoing it a little bit. Like you're very professionally saying this with this like smirk on your face. And I can just imagine, oh, we'll, we'll get it together. But you know what? How I feel is I'd rather you do that than not at all. Yeah. And then Part of that seeking is finding a safe space to do it. Like a lot of my clients and my friends, they will say, this is what I did. This is what I said. Is that right? You know? So, you know, have somebody that you can say, you know what? That was that was kind of not right. Let me tell you why. Yeah. You know? So I think having a safe space to be able to unpack some of the things is important too. Yeah. I agree. And I think that even this can be found in your... BIPOC friends, but I think that it can also be found in your white friends. And preferably if you have a white friend who can do some of this educating too, so we're not putting all of that work mm-hmm. on our BIPOC mm-hmm. you know, friends. I think about the conversations that I frequently have with my you know, white girlfriends and mom friends because 
I have a little bit more maybe lived experience than they right. do. I think about a situation where, you know, I have a, a white teacher friend and they were talking about care and just understanding and putting some context to the historical significance of a black woman's hair and, you know, why we don't touch hair and maybe why we don't, you know, do certain things as we grow in this ourselves as white moms, as white women or, you know, white people, generally speaking, we can sort of interject on that, you know, girl's behalf and say, hey, like this is significant, you know, and have some of these conversations, like you said, in that safe environment, we can seek out people who we trust that they know our heart right. in that situation, that the intent is not, and I know intent doesn't like, you know, impact and intent and, you know, we can do harm even though we aren't intending to, but when we can have a safe space in that seeking out, like you said, and find somebody who can truly know like what we're trying to achieve and kind of help us along, really impactful, really important part of the journey, I think. Yes, I agree. Yep. And it sounds like you are doing that for some of your friends because of your lived experiences is a more vast in the area of race yeah. than some of your friends or diversity of race, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm loving this. I'm loving spending time with you today, I have to say. So when it comes to some more of these practical takeaways or biggest things that maybe clients ask you, can we pull on some more of those sort of action pieces for parents? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that clients have problems with is just getting started, right? Mm -hmm. Like wanting to do the work, but not sure where to start. Mm -hmm. And I always say to start at home, right? People think activism is this big thing that other people do, but it really is in the spaces of your homes. You know, what we do in the privacy of our homes will show up in the public space. Mm. And so redirecting your children, having conversations with your children. You know, the low-hanging fruit are children's literature, uh, reading with your children about different kinds of people, different ways of being and living, normalizing differences, but not just reading, but really having critical conversations with your children about what you're reading, because sometimes just the books alone may do harm. Mm. So unpacking them, asking your kids a lot of open-ended questions one of the things that I think is really important for families is to have a set of core values, mm. things that are important to us as a family, so that when things may go awry or we're off balance, that we can come back to these core values and say, do these things align with what we think are most important to us, the legacy that we're trying to leave for each other, the way we're showing up or the things that we say or what we see in the world, how does that align with our core values? So having core values in your home, if your kids are very young, something you and your partner can do. If you have kids who are, I would say, three or four and higher, they can be a part of creating those core values mm -hmm. and let those core values kind of drive the way you talk about differences in your home. But I think it's something that needs to be done so that it's creating these habits of being compassionate and kind. The other thing is doing small acts, right? We do the driving, paying for the person behind us in line. We do the letter writing when we see something in our city or our state or in our county that we don't agree with. I remember when my oldest son was five, when we were driving down a road that we normally drive down, we start seeing that they were cutting down the trees. 
And he got so upset about the tree cutting. And I'm like, okay, what can we do? Why is that upsetting to you? What can we do about it? And we wrote letters to the mayor. He took his letter to the mayor to say how sad he was that we were cutting down the green space. Mm. So that was empowering for him. So we're teaching our children that when they feel something, that feeling is valid. And how do we then do something to try to make a difference in that thing that's bothering us. So these small acts that you're doing in your home are building character for your children when they're out in the world that they will be comfortable with making changes and pushing it back against status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you're speaking, this sounds really empowering to moms to see the work that they do through such a significant like lens. I think that especially in the early postpartum days and a lot of the moms that I work with in the audience I work with, it feels like Groundhog's Day. It feels like a lot of self-sacrifice. It feels like for the stay-at-home mom, maybe maybe even kind of like insignificant at times, right? And to see parenting through this lens where you're raising human beings who will have an impact on other human beings, you know, and and there's a way that we can do that where they are welcoming and kind is really special in the work that we're doing. Yes. That idea of creating belonging at home so that you're raising children who will create spaces of belonging in the world, Mm. right? So that Mm -hmm. when it becomes natural, when they get into the world, they're going to want to do that. And so I think the small ripples that we do every day in our homes will have bigger ripples out in the world. And it doesn't take a lot. And that's part of activism Mm -hmm. because you're raising kids who see differences, who protect differences, who celebrate differences, and who, when they get out in the world, this will seem normal to stand up for others. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is, you know, letting go of the fear, right? doing these small things and exposing our children to real things in the world, you know, telling them the truth, being vulnerable is really a way that you are really being a change agent yourself for the next generation. Yeah. You talk about celebrating differences and it brings up this, I saw like a quote somewhere about like, you can't celebrate like BIPOC, you know, diversity and inclusion and leave out LGBTQ plus you know, inclusion and diversity. And when we're talking about activism and raising children who create a space of belonging, one of the thoughts that comes up in my mind is like, we can't cherry pick who we teach them to embrace, you know? It needs to be beyond skin color into a lot of other areas, these principles. Absolutely, yeah. And that's what I mean by Okay, again, this is about the self-reflection. We have to think about one of the activities that I have in the book and that I do with my clients is I have a list of identities, Mm -hmm. right? We have all these different multiple identities that we have, and we need to be looking at all of those identities in ways that they can support other people. So we're talking about race because it's right now it's something that is in the news cycle, right? It's something that is needing a lot of support, Mm -hmm. right? This whole idea with all lives matter versus Black lives matter. We want to attend to the people who are hurting the most, right, right, at the time. And so it doesn't mean that 
all these other identities that people hold are not as important. So yes, I agree. We're teaching our kids about people with disabilities. We're talking about LGBTQ. We're talking about religious minorities. We're talking about gender. We're talking about all the things that separate us, right? Or things that we can choose to learn about and that can bring us together in ways that they're more inclusive. Yeah, I completely agree. And just like I think some of the racist things have been taught growing up, I also grew up in a very conservative, religious family and community that a lot of my friend groups and things I'm still very tethered to today. So when we start to talk about things like you know, LGBTQ stuff or things that just go against some of those traditional religious values, there is a lot of like we talk about that uncomfortable cognitive dissonance that comes up, you know. And for me or for anybody else who's been raised in similar backgrounds like that, like it's so important for us to pause and just say like, do I really still hold this belief? Like this has been taught to me my whole life and did I put that belief there? Like is this something that I truly want to hold on to that aligns with my values and the lens through which I view people now, beliefs expire. Like there's an expiry date on some of these. It's true. Yes. We're always evolving and growing, right? And I grew up too. My father was a pastor. Ah, So I'm a preacher's kid. And I always say that, you know, I believe in Jesus, Mm. right? He was very social justice minded. Mm -hmm. He always dwelled in the spaces where people were hurting and needing support and needing to be empowered. And so I raised my kids to see that part of the religion, but my social views don't align with a lot of my past or a lot of, you know, my friends. Yeah. And I'm okay with that too. And so I believe the message that Jesus sent Mm. is more inclusive. And so um, with that, it's very hard for me to find a church home. Like, I oh, find, yeah. like I'm, I'm with you. I'm <laughs> right with around. you. I'm in that space. It's like, oh, I love my faith, but we got some work to do, friends. We got some work to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I think that uh, when we're talking about expanding, like the conversation around races, like you said, that was the crisis. Other minorities, I'm sure, feel like they're in crisis at times and we've got like trans youth that are, you know, really struggling and things like that. Yes. But now I want to just sort of highlight that this conversation is not just about, you know, having books that have different skin colors in them. I mean, that's a great place for us to start. But I think that even in my own work, I can do more in representing different types of families, books that have maybe two dads or two moms, or I have a book, I can't remember the author, but... I think he's from Queer Eye and he's got a book, It's Okay to Be Different. Oh, yes. And we had that for the kids. And it's just about like embracing who you are regardless of whether it's different. And some of these messages just about being able to embrace people for who they are, period, you know? Yeah. And I think too, say you're reading the book, we're going to take this example, about different skin colors and you are totally comfortable with that and it's great. It means you're not doing enough, right? So you should always be on that edge of feeling a little uncomfortable with what you're doing because it means that you're pushing yourself and you're growing too. Mm. So the minute that gets easy for you, it's time to like ranch it up a notch, right? Mm -hmm. It's time to do a little bit more so that you are progressively being more active and showing up for others. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
we get to like a comfort level, we kind of park ourselves there, get really comfy with it. And again, I think that this comes back to how I've seen lots of quotes about having the realization and doing some of the work, but not enough of the work actually like, you know, can be problematic in a way. Like we think that we are done and we're not. Yes. Yes. Never done. I'll just leave it at that. That's a whole conversation I feel like, but right. <laughs> but yeah. And, and I think that that's a really important thing. Like there should always be a little bit of tension and learning and, and we always want to recoil. I feel like. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people, you know, several months ago when everybody was putting up their black squares on their Instagrams or their, yeah. you know, and now they've gone back to life as normal where some of us, this is normal, right? So that we have to, right. if your activism is now over, it means that you really are not being active. It's more performative. And then we need to get back to actually the doing. Yeah. And I think that these steps and how you line it out for the doing are so important because it's like, well, I know that I can post something on social media and like that feels easy right. and it feels like some directive, like I know it's concrete, I know what I need to do here and it's, I can do it, right? But these other pieces are more uncomfortable, that self-reflection, and they're also kind of more vague and they're not immediate, right? They take time. Like this is a journey. I am, I would say like pretty deep into this journey and still I will continue to learn and probably each new stage of development that my children hit or each new sort of stage we are in our family, new things come up in me about those times in my life or whatever. Like things emerge, like things come up. We're not ever done doing this work. And I mean, that absolutely feels uncomfortable to say, but it's just the reality of the journey that we're on. Right, right. And on my journey in the LGBTQ community, right? And so there's a lot I'm learning as I'm trying to support my friends and my students who are a part of that community. And so just when you think you have something down in one area, you like where you're doing activist yeah. and um, ally work, you have other areas that you need to be working on. So like you said, the journey never ends. It's always about growing and evolving, yeah. learning, unlearning, relearning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we want our kids to do. That's who we want our kids to become. Yeah. So we have to model that. Yeah. And I really like the idea that we want to instill in children that they are a safe place where others can belong. Like that core value of belonging is so important. And we've wrestled with something that you've alluded to, like, do we move away from the city? Like we're in the suburbs of Toronto, but it's all very, like one of the most multicultural cities in the world, Toronto. And we're like, do we move where we have more land? Like now we're both digital. Do we move? And we're like, oh, but the boys, and uh, is there going to be enough diversity there for them? And will there be acceptance and belonging ultimately at the end of the day is what we're talking about, right? Right. Yes. And then that one decision has such rippling yeah. effects on all the other major decisions about your children. It's called bundle decisions or bundle choices. Mm. That one choice you make, all these other choices are bundled with it. And they could be very impactful to your children. Yeah. I so appreciate your time today. This is such a meaningful conversation, such a meaningful work that you are putting out into the world. Tell people where they can find you, where they can get your new book. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, Erica. This has been great. Where the most action happens is on my Instagram, which is at Social Justice Parenting. Also, my email, same name, socialjusticeparenting.com. And the book is sold everywhere. You can get it at small bookstores. You can get it on Amazon or any place where books are sold. Great. We'll link all of those details in the show notes so that people can like link on through and find you. And I know the book drops on October 16th. Can people pre-order if this airs before then? Yes. yes. I think we're going to yes. aim to air this after. So hopefully you can go and snatch it up right now and or pre-order it if you are committed to doing this work, which I would hope we all are, right? So thank yes. you again so much for your time. Thank you, Erica. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.